0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm
2: Aswin Tsutseng, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp.
1: All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics.
2: Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. So Will, I think you have found a new investment opportunity for us and our listeners parody. That's a joke. Don't invest in this. Will, tell us a little bit of it. Well, I wouldn't be so quick to say that, Swin. Okay, so
1: here's
2: (laughs) the deal. I mean, you know, it depends
1: on your risk tolerance. Okay, so the backstory here, right, is that I just consume just massive amounts of right-wing media, and in particularly Telegram, which is where all the real action goes down now. This is kind of this this off-brand social media network. And so just like huge funnel right into my brain. I was recently, I said to my wife recently, I was watching some Olympians get excited, and I said, they're doing the soy face. And she said, you know, they They've really messed up your brain. Anyway, so I noticed (laughs) there's basically there's this new thing now called the QAnon coin, and this is not the first. QAnon branded coin. And in fact, not the first I've reported on. Isn't there like a QAnon Bitcoin as well? That's a great question. I wouldn't be surprised if there is a a QAnon cryptocurrency. And if so, if you know about it, contact me. I'm on Twitter. But in this case, there's this QAnon coin and it, you know, it has a Q over an American flag and it says where we go one, we go all. But what I think is interesting here is, let me just read the description for you. Finally, the forbidden QAnon coin is released on market and it's not known for how long. This made Democrats angry. Why? Because the Coins price is expected to skyrocket over $1,000 when Trump is back in office. So this is like an investment opportunity, right? Or being
2: pitched that way. Something I enjoy about this description is basically what they're saying, whether intentionally or not, is people who support democracy are going to hate this coin (laughs) this one fascist trick
1: infuriates democracy supporters okay so it's like haha so the QAnon coin sells for like 30 bucks it's impossible to know if anyone how people are buying the QAnon coin whatever but I think what's interesting here is that we're seeing the continuation of the the ancient grift now that we saw originally with Iraqi dinars of this something that is practically worthless and telling selling it to people at a markup and saying well actually this is going to be worth so much money in the future, and we're all going to be fabulously wealthy. And obviously, this is there's just so many, so much grift like this going on on Telegram, in particular, because all of the QAnon people were kicked off of Twitter and Facebook and are now on Telegram. And it is like I don't know if it's like baby turtles just getting picked off by vultures or something, but like they've been pushed out into this world and they're just totally defenseless. And the grifters are swooping in because I mean, the QAnon believers have already shown that they're huge marks, right? So there's the guy who's like, "Send me all your money, and I'll invest." In Bitcoin for us posing as JFK Jr., and obviously he's just taking the money. There's a Trump coin that will also explode in value. So, so I think the QAnon, the forbidden QAnon coin, sort of gives us a, a glimpse into this uh this grift market. So who's behind this? Do we know? Oh, we'll never know. I mean, it's
2: some brave financier, I would assume. So is there any intersection between the QAnon coin market and the Iraqi dinar scam market? Is I there think any, so. Like, major nexus between the two. Yeah,
1: and I mean for for those who aren't familiar of really one of the touchstones of this podcast and one of one of our origin stories, I mean, the Iraqi dinar after the Gulf First Gulf War was totally worthless currency. And the idea has been outside of Iraq. And so basically you sell it to Americans for a huge markup and say, well, actually, what's going to happen is Trump in this case, is going to revalue the Iraqi dinar. And if you were smart enough to invest in this currency that was worth a fraction of a penny, put $2,000 into it, for example, you'll get $100 million in return when this happens. And so you have these communities of people who are sort of obsessed with this moment known as the revalue. Uh, and And they get very focused on it. And obviously, you know, they're waiting for nothing. It's not going to happen. And so, you know, people get indicted over this scam, all this kind of stuff. And I just think it's interesting. The grift that really undercut, that fuels so much on the right is a theme of our podcast. And so I just think the QAnon coin is the latest example of that. And so maybe someday someone will tip you in QAnon coin and you can hang on to that.
2: I'm looking at the photo of it right now. I got to admit, it kind of looks cool and it has a gigantic (laughs) Q on it, superimposed on sort of an American flag. And I just think that if that were the original design of the quarter, that'd be much cooler. Just Yeah, well, it, it will be
1: after the storm. I mean, I think this is a great thing that you can pay for, you can use to buy your freedom phone, and then you can really just sort of enter this whole self- separate realm. All right, Swin, you've been out west. You've been out with the little doggies. You've been wearing your cowboy hat. You've been hanging out with the libertarians. What have you been up to in South Dakota?
2: Okay, well, as some of our listeners may know, my wife is an editor and reporter at Reason Magazine. And co-founder of this nonprofit group called Feminists for Liberty. So she was speaking at this annual conference called Freedom Fest, which is usually held in Las Vegas. But this year it was moved to South Dakota, specifically in Rapid City, which is about 30 minutes from Mount Rushmore. And as you can probably guess, this had to do with the state's incredibly lax or uh, virtually non-existent. This rocks. They're like, Nevada tried to keep people from dying. That's not libertarian. We're out of here incredibly lackluster COVID restrictions and response of, among other people, Governor Christy Nome. This libertarian slash conservative conference was moved there for this year. So I, being someone who really knows how to invest in his free time, took some vacation days from the Daily Beast so I could follow my... Yes. Fever Dreams Liber- Freedom Fest correspondent. Exactly. And I was there mostly just to hang out and just be a cheerleader for my wife and her work i just want to be very clear to our listeners that my wife is not a (laughs) does not share the views of a lot of people at this conference she's not an anti-vaxxer or a covid skeptic she's certainly not a supporter of anybody like governor Noam or anything like that so no need to tweet at me about this but anyway even though it does emphasize the libertarian streak of the attendees and of the speakers and of the conference organizers They, of course, do cater to the conservative element that does annually attend this as if they're like uh, Freedom Fest groupies, which means you're going to have speakers and honored guests, including people like James O'Keefe, obviously Governor Chrissy Gnomes, fan favorites like Senator Mike Lee, Dave Rubin, because of course, and why not? And Dennis Quaid, whose politics I think are a little bit harder to nail down than that of his brother Randy Quaid, who is just like an aggressively pro-Trump conspiracy theorist. Uh, Dennis Quaid sent something akin to a welcome video. So thank you, Mr. Quaid. I think he's more of a libertarian of sorts. And so when you're roaming the halls and the exhibit halls of a place like Freedom Fest, it's a little bit different than when we send someone like Will Summer out into the wild. Because the conferences you frequent at the most left wing something like CPAC and then you and then to the right of that are the QAnon conferences that you go to. It is very clear what kind of attendee you're going to get there. There's no mystery about it whatsoever. But here it's a little bit different. You you have a mix of more left libertarians and more hard right ones and different atheist groups, different gold as currency groups, and I could go on and on and on, but I think what really underscored it for me the most is the more people you spoke to A lot of them seem like aggressively normie at first. They they seem like your parents or grandparents who would own like a really nice mobile home. But then as you get more and more conversation, there are too many people who are enthusiastic to pivoting to subjects of you got to start buying up arms because, yeah, we're going to hopefully we're going to beat them at the ballot box. But they they're not defining exactly who they are. Maybe one day we're going to have to quash them in a civil war. You have people who were even just chatting with me about the tenets of libertarian feminism. And then all of a sudden uh, they're talking about how if the feds come to my door to try to get my unvaccinated ass, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm just going to tell them to fuck off. And don't let the alligator bite you on the way out.
1: Yeah, I mean, what is the mood there in the the post-Trump era?
2: Well... That's the thing. During the Trump era, there were moments where some conference organizers and people who regularly attended didn't like some of the direction they were going in. I think a year or two ago, Candace Owens was invited as a marquee speaker. There's nothing libertarian about someone like Candace Owens at all. This was just like a sop to the pro-Trump right that was obviously incorporated into conferences like this over the past four years or so. But the mood was Trump's name was not plastered over it nearly as much as you'd see at a place like CPAC. It wasn't absent, but there was sort of this air about like, okay, what do we do now? Who is our shining star in the libertarian conservative nexus? And one of them was, of course, Governor Chrissy Noem, who has been sort of batted about as a name in prospective 2024 Republican circles. She was one of the marquee speakers at the conference, and she was self-aware enough to make the point to tell the crowd of mostly libertarian or libertarian-leaning Republicans that basically nobody at this conference knew who the hell she was until the quote-unquote liberal media started attacking her for her, you guessed it, Coronavirus policies and response over the past year and a half or so.
1: You know, obviously, it got moved to South Dakota because of COVID rules. I mean, would you say, like, the main thing going on right now
2: with the libertarians is COVID stuff? It certainly was a major part of the conference, which I don't think is going to surprise too much of our audience. Christy Noem, when she was on stage, she said, quote, we're kind of a laid back crew here in South Dakota. Have you noticed that we're just normal, everyday people who appreciate a wonderful way of life? End quote. This is coming from a governor who has presided over a coronavirus death rate in her state, which has a much smaller population as compared to other states in the union that has been, I think, what many of us would call abysmal. So I think having a laid back true, even in the context of a national and international emergency was certainly part of the ethos there.
1: I have two questions for you about libertarians, right? Number one, did you see they're known for their style? Did you see any
2: cool outfits, any leather fedoras, that kind of stuff? Surprisingly, no. If you went to a party hosted by the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C., I think there would have been more of that. But This is
1: disturbing to me, the normification of of libertarians. This is more disturbing to me than like the mainstreaming of
2: QAnon or something. This this is ominous. Well, the thing is, if you're in a place like New York City or Washington, D.C., libertarian, especially a small L libertarian, is going to be a lot different than in other parts of the country. I'll never forget there was this one person who uh, works in libertarian media and politics who told me that years ago when he was at a... major multi-state libertarian organization. And he was getting his training in Washington, D.C. This is a guy who, if you're in Washington, D.C., is exactly what you'd expect of someone who is in that kind of libertarian stew. Anti-drug war, pro-criminal justice reform, wants to end all the wars that the U.S. is involved with, like very, very normy libertarian stuff. If I recall his story correctly, he said that his supervisor specifically told him, okay, you're going to go out into the wild, into different states like South Dakota, to raise Money. And when you're doing that, to speak the language of a libertarian who is not based in Washington, D.C., you gotta watch Alex Jones. Like, that might sound crazy and far out to you, but take some time settle down with some popcorn or a cocktail at your laptop and fire up at least an hour or so of Alex Jones a day for a period of time, just so you can internalize the principles and the rhetoric of what you will encounter when you see libertarians as they truly are in the vast middle and elsewhere in the United States. They are not going to sound like Justin Amash.
1: So my other question for you is libertarians are known for their love of consuming colloidal silver, a substance that, among other things, turns your skin blue. Did you see any
2: people with blue skin. except for myself who is a big fan of that regimen no absolutely not as i said this there were a lot of families and older and elderly people there who again just seem like they just don't want to be told what vaccines to take and want their taxes low i have to say i was expecting a wilder crowd it was not nearly the kind of like raging, lustful kind of crew that you would expect at a place like a CPAC.
1: So obviously Libertarians are also known for their comedy. Swin, did you see any great comics there? And what is passing for Libertarian comedy these days? Okay, are you familiar
2: with this guy named Comic Dave Smith? Yeah, no, what was his deal? Okay, Comic Dave Smith is a guy who fancies himself a premier Libertarian comic. I have to be honest, I have heard about him. I've heard other libertarians complain about him online. But he's not someone whose comedy I've ever taken time to sit down and consume or check out his set on YouTube. He had, I think, a few different sets at Freedom Fest 2021. But the one I saw was at this gala-style dinner on the closing Saturday night event, where he took to the stage and was kind of warming up the crowd for, among other people, Senator Mike Lee. So he gets up there and he does something I've never seen a comedian do to a crowd before. He confesses something to the effect of he hasn't actually prepared that much because he's been doing so many events here, so he's not really sure what he wants to talk about. So he goes off on this tangent about how there was this one time where he was freaking out because he got a hotel room and he wasn't sure if he was going to have to share a bed with his male colleague. So there was a little bit of like homoerotic panic to his alleged humor here. And then the whole bit was about requesting a cot from the front desk so they wouldn't have to like spoon together in the same bed. And he kept referring to the people who brought the cot to his room as the Mexican or the Mexican. (laughs) Jesus. And the weird thing was I, I was sitting there with my wife and other people at the table and we expected that to be a setup to something. Okay. Like there has to be a reason he's mentioning the nationality or the alleged nationality of this hotel employee. And no, he just said like several different times. Oh, yeah. And then the Mexicans said, oh, and, and then and then here's the thing about the cot.
1: He's like, I got to get this freaking cot. I can't share a bed with this guy.
2: Yeah, but your delivery was way <laughs> the funnier. The crowd was laughing. The, the crowd, which you think would be primed for this, was not having it. They were like, why is this guy talking about cots and Mexicans? This is the libertarian Dan Nainen. Yes, yes, absolutely. Except Dan Nainan is way funnier than this because... I kept thinking, okay, this has to be a setup for a punchline, even if the punchline is racist or it sucks. That has to be something. It just did not go. Like, it it wasn't an actual joke. And then he pivoted from that. Uh, soon after to talking about joe biden i was like okay okay here we go here we go he's a libertarian or conservative comedian you're talking about joe biden he's gonna make a bunch of sleepy joe type jokes it's like shooting fish in a barrel this is going to be incredibly easy there's probably going to be some like ableist or ageist stuff in there about joe biden's brain maybe he can get a laugh or two out of the room with this and he just doesn't stick the landing he just says, yeah the way he talks it's uh Kind of weird, you know? And I'm so glad you brought the Dan Nainan comparison because if our listeners listen to a clip of him next to Dan Nainan, it's actually a very similar halting and kind of like, I'm not sure where the exits are in this room kind of delivery to this comedy. And it's just baffling. I started just cracking up at the table because it it was just so morbidly non-funny that I just couldn't help but start laughing hysterically, which... I started to think to myself, maybe that's the magic to his art. And maybe I'm the sucker here. Maybe it's just brilliant anti-comedy.
1: Maybe the joke is on you. No, this is edgy stuff, man. Well, thank
2: you for the libertarian comedy scene report. So, Will, as the January 6th commission on Capitol Hill actually kind of starts to get underway, you have been tracking very closely the canonization of the January 6th riders, that's happening uh, a lot on the right. And not in the fringes, not just in the fever swamps, but quite a bit close to or directly in the conservative mainstream. Can you tell us a little bit of some of the tricks that some of these Republicans on Capitol Hill are trying to pull to try to hold these people up as uh, martyrs and as Democrats as the desecrators of their sacrifice.
1: Yeah, sure. So this is kind of our, our January 6th update. Obviously, the January 6th commission is kicking off. Republicans are trying to counter-program that. Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene are going to protest outside the Justice Department. And so what's going on here is something that struck me as interesting. While the vast majority of the riot suspects have been released from jail pending trial, some of the worst of the worst or the people who are facing the most serious charges are still in jail. And they've kind of taken on this sainthood on the right and are becoming... It reminded me of nothing like as much as like the Irish Republican Army sanctifying its people in prison. They're calling them like the one sixers and this kind of stuff. And so we're seeing this kind of coordinated effort to make these guys out to be these like innocent patriots who were simply who have been kind of taken on, you know, who are being unfairly prosecuted by the Justice Department simply because they love Trump and and free elections.
2: OK, so obviously uh, Matt Gates is having a prominent role in this. What has he been up to this week? What is he spearheading?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, he, he's, he's rallying with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, Louis Gohmert, kind of the a rogues gallery. And these guys are becoming very fixated on how the prisoners are being treated in the D.C. jail. Now, obviously, I'm not going to come out and tell you the D.C. jail is uh, the nicest place to spend your time. But these tales, these defense attorneys have been telling these very lurid tales of what's going on in the jail. They're claiming that guards are taking the January 6th prisoners out one by one and beating them up, sometimes with help from other prisoners. That one guy was like, my client's pants fell down, and everyone was laughing at him while he was getting beaten up. And the line that's coming out, especially on One America News and Newsmax, is they're saying this is worse than Guantanamo Bay, which is odd because like pre- these guys were like port of Guantanamo right, Bay, exactly. so it's, it's a right. little odd to to be like that place is messed up. <laughs> and, and you know, this is worse than Abu Ghraib as well. This idea is that these guys are being subjected to these like medieval tortures, and
2: that this is becoming really like a very animating cause on well, the right. The abuses at both get Mo and Abu Ghraib were meticulously documented. There's a lot of evidence you can kind of slam down if you want to make the claim that there were horrific abuses there. Are these defense attorneys providing any uh, photos, any direct evidence, uh, like evidence of bruising or bleeding? Like, is, is there anything like that? No. Have they said why they haven't provided this evidence? Because if this is going on, it is a horrific abuse that whatever the prisoners did you can't do that
1: right yeah they really haven't offered any evidence of that i mean i asked the attorneys who there was kind of this interview with newsmax and podcast favorite greg kelly where a lot of these came out these allegations of like basically torture chambers inside the jail and no i mean the attorney did not get back to me he hasn't entered this in the court record making this claim and so but nevertheless i mean this has been embraced by congressional republicans and a lot of right wing media at the same time they're also having these rallies and the the rally they had a rally outside the dc jail jail two weeks ago they're having another rally and a lot of these rallies are they kind of feature the the flotsam left over from the election fraud movement and so like there there's guys who are like Sidney powell is now pivoting to being a like rescue the prisoners person. And so they had this rally and they read out letters from the inmates and they're they're really like, you know, we're just American boys. Like, how do we end up here? And so the, uh, one guy had this letter that they read out that I loved. And he said, we are just regular freedom, loving Americans with a tendency towards humorous shenanigans.
2: Ah, humorous shenanigans. Did they stipulate what they defined as humorous shenanigans? The
1: ultimate shenanigan, you know, beating up cops or
2: whatever. And
1: obviously, this is part of the same kind of martyrdom canonization thing we're seeing with Ashley Babbitt, and really part of this whole effort to really rewrite the history of January 6th. And so I should mention, we're getting, they're almost taking like little relics or little bits of of their new saints. And so the latest thing is this audio that came out that purports to be the prisoners singing the national anthem every night at 9pm. And it's this really scratchy audio. I was listening to it in my wife and in another room asked if I was listening to footage of an exorcism. <laughs> because it was, it was just like screaming. And obviously, like a jailhouse recording isn't gonna be the best quality. But it sounds terrible. But people I mean, Amy Kramer, this Republican activist who was involved in the rally that preceded the riot. She said, Oh, this is so sad, a broken heart emoji. So you know, we're seeing kind of all these personality aspects come out about the prisoners and this idea that they are political
2: prisoners is the phrase that keeps being uh, repeated over and over. Has anybody made the Nelson Mandela comparison yet? Like, is there a particular quote unquote political prisoner here who they're holding up as the Nelson Mandela of the January 6th movement?
1: There's a gentleman who was supposedly had his eye injured during one of these supposed beatings. Again, that hasn't been made clear. And yet the idea that his eye was injured has now transformed into his eye popped out. This is a guy who supposedly concussed a female police officer by throwing her down the sta- downstairs. This guy has a history of of beating up women, allegedly, in the past. And so this guy, Ryan Semsell, is becoming kind of one of the main characters. But but really, I mean, all of these inmates, I mean, obviously, the Q Shaman is a big one. The, the QAnon people in particular have embraced him. Although I can tell you that when I was out in Arizona, QAnon people were getting a little irritated with his lawyer, who famously said that these are short bus people. And they were saying that his lawyer is sort of getting in the way of, the, of making him this martyr because they're getting a little irritated with the lawyer saying that they're short bus people.
2: Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet.
1: Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing.
2: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards, only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com. This week's guest is Alex Pareen, staff writer at The New Republic. In his years opining and blogging at various news sites including salon.com and Gawker, Alex has emerged as one of the absolute funniest opinion writers on the left. At times, he's also proven to be one of the most scarily prophetic. You can find Alex on Twitter at @parine. Alex, welcome to Fever Dreams. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. One thing we want to ask you about was to dig into some of your most recent writing at The New Republic, where it seems over the course of at least three articles recently, there has been a similar theme. The theme being that Democrats and the center-left today in this country are particularly atrocious at propaganda, especially as when you compare it to the mainstream and Trumpian right in modern American politics. Can you explain to our listeners why you think that is and how big of a problem you think this
0: is? Yeah, sure. And, you know, I like to use the word propaganda to be sort of intentionally a bit provocative, right? And I, I use it because there's always a lot of discussion about how Democrats are bad at messaging. And I find messaging to be not a particularly useful way of looking at the issue of how Americans receive political information, who they're hearing from, what arguments they're hearing. If you focus a lot on the right wing in this country, you know that the right-wing messaging apparatus is a giant propaganda organ. It's not necessarily entirely top-down driven, but to a large extent, it is organized. Uh, and a lot of money goes into sending out these right-wing narratives. On the other side of it, we, when we talk about democratic messaging, a lot of it is like, are they saying the right thing? Starting basically after the 2020 election, it seemed to me, are they saying the right thing seemed the wrong question to ask. And it's a question of, of does it matter what they're saying if it's mediated through either on the one hand, the right-wing propaganda machine, or on the other hand, the corporate media? And for a long time, Democrats, I think, have relied on... The mainstream media, and I mean primarily television news, but obviously also, you know, the New York Times and The Washington Post, they've relied on them to be the faithful carriers of their message. But that's not the that's not the mainstream news's job. And being in the media and being in the liberal media, the sort of ideologically left of center media, you know. I've seen a lot of right-wingers spend a lot of money supporting right-wing media that doesn't make a profit on its own. And I've seen a lot of left-of-center rich people only decide to support journalism if, if they believe it can stand on its own as a profitable business. So that's sort of what has led me to this recent discussion of, of liberal propaganda or the lack thereof.
1: This is what has also been called the hack gap, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, I was struck recently, I don't know if y'all are, are deep enough in this, this mess to see this, but the big thing over the weekend and the past couple of days has been taking this audio of Biden where it's a little unclear what he said. And then they say, he said, I wiped my butt. And like, this might, I mean, this is distasteful stuff, but like, this is like all over. This was on Dan Bongino's show. Uh, You know, I was hearing about it from conservatives in my own life. And this is obviously just fake nonsense, but that you have this whole apparatus just pushing just like absolute crap out all the time.
0: Yeah, oh, exactly. I think there was like, it was floating around on Twitter, but there was basically a chart of like media mentions of Antifa. And it was like, it peaked and then it went away. It was like, clearly like this, this stuff is just like, it's not even just that it's a top down directive, but it's just that like their machine is a giant echo chamber that amplifies whatever message they want to talk about at
2: any given moment. Absolutely. And speaking of one of those topics that they really, really, really want to amplify right now, not just as a conservative movement and a media, but as a political party, you've written at TNR recently a piece headlined, avoiding unpopular issues doesn't make them go away and then you write how it's politically savvy for Democrats to avoid wading into the critical race theory culture war. It's also a dereliction of duty. Tell us more about what you mean by that and the distinction between how it's politically savvy, but also a detriment to why they're supposed to be there.
0: Yeah, sure. And it's my response to, I think, a sort of Vulgar version of the popularism argument, which is sort of the 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 liberal side has been arguing about this for a while. the David Shore his version of it is a little bit more complex, but basically the like vulgar version is like only talk about things that are already popular that poll well. And so what that doesn't take into account is that the other side has the ability to create issues, from essentially nothing, and make them unpopular. And so if your political strategy is, I will simply not talk about things that are controversial, you have to account for the fact that your opponents can make anything controversial. They can create controversy. That is what, is, that is what they have been doing to you for decades now. And where that leads is you can say, all right, here's the savvy part of it. Yeah, it's probably best if Joe Biden is not going on TV every day and saying, look, man, I love critical race theory. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, like cut the crap. <laughs> that would be awesome. I mean, it would be awesome. I would be thrilled if you did that. <laughs> if he you, if you came out and was like. Read some Kimberly Crenshaw, all right, man? (laughs) I would enjoy that quite a bit. But, you know, we know he's not going to do that. And we know that part of the reason he's been politically successful recently is that he doesn't – the White House and Joe Biden don't wade into what they see as cultural issues very often. But, you know, on the ground – what does it look like on the ground? On the ground, that looks like states passing bills that are attacking – the freedom of speech of educators, both in the sort of under the college level and in the elementary and high school level, bills saying what can and can't be taught to students, bills saying what arguments kids are allowed to hear, and then and it also has meant organizing. You know, the right has been organizing again. They, as they have been doing for many decades now, they've been organizing at this hyper local level to take over school boards and things like that. To abandon the unpopular cultural issue is to abandon the political fight at that level, at the local level at the ground level so we can say yes when you're running an election campaign focus on the kitchen table issues sure if that's a political winner but at some point you have to actually fight back when these things go from simply a a talk radio controversy to actually a political things happening on the ground
2: that's an interesting point when you bring up like the conservative media propaganda organs and ground zero of that even now, in so many ways, is talk radio and extensions of it. Why do you think it was that liberals were so bad at getting in a, on that market? They tried. There was a period of time or a decade or so where they tried to get the Air Americas and that ilk into that game, and it just fell completely flat. Like the tens of millions of listeners and potential indoctrinees that are hyper-focused in that market just did not go for it. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of theories about that. None of them are—I will
0: I will not claim any of them are particularly well thought out, right? <laughs> They're these are just sort of, like, off the top of my head. I think on the one hand, like, so when talk radio becomes a right-wing thing, you have to understand— that like, it's not, I don't think we're just getting the sort of pure revealed preferences of the people. I think to some extent, it's what station owners wanted to put on the air, what messages they wanted to highlight and who they didn't want on the air. And also, you know, liberals, and this has been especially true more and more as the sort of education gap has widened over the last few decades. Liberals want to listen to college educated white liberal who are the affluent audience that I think. A profit-seeking talk radio station would want. They want NPR. They don't. They didn't want Air America. I mean, there was an audience for some of Air America, and it fell apart for lots of other reasons. When you have college-educated, well-off liberals, they want to listen to the sort of biased and objective news. And when you have uh, the conservative audience with money to spend, like they wanted Rush Limbaugh for years and years, and now they now they want this other stuff. So I think it's it's sort of in that sort of demographic part of it, and then pretty hard to get left-wing messages through, and this is my, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to go Chomsky here. It's like, it is legitimately hard to get left-wing messages through corporate media. You know, I think, I think the furthest extent of it you can get is MSNBC liberalism, which is pretty damn inconsistent. That's one part of it. But there's, you can talk about the the form of talk radio itself sort of being, inviting that sort of feeding on, like TV news, feeding on like making people upset, making people outrage sort of identifying an enemy and rallying your audience around that enemy like all those things are sort of inherent in the medium perhaps but i think that there's sort of some vulgar marxist reasons for it as well
1: do you have any current favorite talk radio hosts who are your guys because obviously in the aftermath of rush limbaugh's death the whole scene has been kind of upended
0: i don't know who are the top guys right now i don't even who gets mark levin
1: man number one bestseller i gotta say i listen to mark levin you know it's kind of the afternoon And I love this stuff. But Mark Levin, I'm like, why am I in such a bad mood? And I'm just driving around. And it's like, because I'm listening to Mark Levin. I'm just like, that guy is just uh, like, I mean, Rush Limbaugh was like a nice flute, you know, oh, just nice to hear he had such a rich voice. Mark Levin, no thanks. I think the the medium, like so many others has become degraded. I wrote a little bit
0: about Rush after he died. But that was a remarkable thing about him was that like, I saw the first time I heard Rush, I had pretty liberal parents, but not particularly liberal grandparents and I was like in driving around with my grandpa and he put on Rush and I was like what the hell is this but you had to give the man credit for like his ability as a broadcaster right he had the voice he could keep you occupied for three hours or, or however long the show was. And I, I don't even know how people listen to the new crop of guys. Like the, the new crop of guys are like just whiny and annoying in a way he wasn't.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, he truly did have talent on loan from God. So one piece of yours I keep going back to was something you wrote for Splinter in the aftermath of uh, Charlottesville, which was that what people needed to, under you know, if I can paraphrase your argument here, it was that people needed to understand that the guys in Charlottesville and these kind of like alt-right or alt-right verging young people was basically the future of the Republican Party because every normal young person wanted nothing to do with the GOP. Uh, How do you think that has played out in the years since then? Madison
0: Cawthorn's in Congress. Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, I I wrote a follow-up for TNR after some of the reporting about Cawthorn's
2: background came out. And basically my follow-up was, I was right, see? For our audience who may not remember this piece or didn't read it, can you explain to them what you meant by Charlottesville was a preview of the future of the Republican Party? Because there, there might be some of... Our listeners who think to themselves, well, yeah, Trump's bungling response in the aftermath was an atrocity, but there is a difference between him and someone who holds a tiki torch and does scream the, about the Jews not replacing us.
0: Yeah, sure. So what happened was, if you don't remember some of the re- reporting after that, there was looking into the people, uh, the alt-righters marching in Charlottesville, you know, a bunch of them happened to be identified as members of or even leaders of college Republican chapters at colleges around the country. So you had a bunch of college Republicans there, and including some who were feuding with the sort of establishment college Republicans at their colleges and things like that. But my argument was that Basically, the youth recruitment arm of the conservative movement right now. Years ago, the college Republicans were a pretty nasty bunch, but they were like the sort of they were still sort of the like the
2: business class of the party, right? They all became Lee Atwaters and Carl Rose.
1: Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. But like at this point, like for young people, because the Republican brand and conservatism, I think were so discredited. There's such an age gap in our politics that people uh, some maybe not your smart listeners. Some people think that's a natural fact of politics, but it really isn't. It's It's in American politics. This is a pretty new development, this massive age gap in our politics. So who are the young people who are still attracted to conservatism and what draws them to it? In the era of Donald Trump, why would a young person say, the Republican Party, I want to get involved in that? There's really only one reason, and it's Trumpism. And in particular, it's this the internet version of it, which is entirely this toxic, the 4chan-based often crypto-Nazi, like, white nationalism and winking ironic white nationalism. That's the only appealing thing about conservatism to young
2: people these days. Not the nice young people, but... <laughs> the polite way to put it is, like, the culture war stuff and the politically incorrect stuff is what motivates them, especially if you're in the mind of, like, an 18-year-old kid.
0: Yeah, and so my larger point was, was that, like, what that means is... And I'm not saying that this does not mean that, like... Every young conservative is, is that, but the people who are most engaged in it, the people who will fill these roles in the conservative political pipeline that will eventually feed the party, that was their entry into it. And that's going to be true now for years to come. Their entry into it during the Trump years was that world. And these are the people who will be Republican operatives and Republican politicians for years to come because those are the ones who entered the formal party organizations during the Trump years. And I think that that like we're we are only beginning to grapple with that. In the same set, I think people think people think that Republicans. There are people who think the Republican Party will return to normal, but it's hard to imagine that happening. When
2: like, who are going to be the future Republicans? What pool of people are they draw are they drawing from? Alex, you you made the point, or I should say, you've made the point repeatedly that in terms of this not being something that can easily be diagnosed or brushed aside as liberal hysteria or wanting to paint things with a broad brush, when you look at the youth part of this movement and you look at things like college Republican organizations in the mainstream at major or Ivy League institutions in America look at who they are inviting to speak at their major or minor events they're they're not going out of their way to give people like Mary Catherine Hamm the VIP treatment. They're inviting people like Milo Iannopolises of the world maybe not so much anymore but that was a big thing for a while. They are going out of their way to show you what their are rhetorical and policy priorities are and what extreme sides they're taking in these sort of campus culture wars.
0: I think that's exactly right. And you can paint it in part as the impulse to to trigger the libs is in some sense the very real driving factor for all of these things, but it's also a bit of a figly for like Actually saying, you know what? We like these guys and we endorse their views. As I as I said, when I wrote that piece a few years ago, uh, there was a National Review writer who had actually made this point that I, I highlighted, which is that college Republicans kept doing this. Uh, Columbia College Republicans. Columbia, which is the sort of place where we imagine the college Republicans are like literally just like wherever the modern day Rockefeller Republicans would end up, like you would think it would be somewhere like there. These are These are like rich kids with respectable parents. And, you know, who are they? Like who are they do- who are they giving speaking invites to Mike Cernovich you know? Like, that's the kind of person they were, like, at peak Pizzagate. It was Mike Cernovich was who the Columbia College Republicans wanted to hear from. They're telling you who they are with those kind of things. And a a lot of the entire sort of college speaker debate, which is many free speech debate cycles ago at this point, was about people like, as you said, about people like Milo. But it was this game of saying, who's the most horrid person we can think of with the most objectionable views? Who can we invite to campus purely for the purpose of annoying the other side? And I think, like, it was pretty unintentionally revealing of why these people chose conservatism as a sort of calling to begin with.
2: Did January 6th and its aftermath or any time during the 2020 election beyond a guy like Madison Cawthorn really underscore to you, it's like, okay, this thesis has legs. My bleak worldview is tragically being vindicated over and over again. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I
0: think what has been almost the, the thing that really showed it has been the failure of the bipartisan commission in a sense, because I think that shows how unwilling sort of the establishment Democrats are to accept my premise, right? I think that there's this divide and I've written about it a little bit, but but like if you're a senator or an ex-senator and the Republicans you deal with on a, on a daily basis are Republican senators, for the most part, except for Ted Cruz, you're dealing with, like, the most professional people remaining in the Republican Party. Even if they're impossible to work with and extreme ideologically and and obstructing your entire agenda, they still sound like the sort of
2: reasonable Republican senators that you would have dealt with 20, 25 years ago. Just a few years ago, they were saying, man, we got to make Marco Rubio the Republican standard bearer, because at least for that time being, he was saying we shouldn't throw every immigrant in America into a dungeon.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's an interesting contrast there because I think House Democrats have a much clearer idea of who they're dealing with because they have more of this new breed of Republican there in the House. I mean, you have House Democrats like like AOC who are harassed and threatened by fellow members of the House. And I think that gives you a clearer idea. I think that some senior Democrats want to imagine that the ones in the, the, the crazy house nuts are the outliers. And to me, they're just
2: representative of where the
0: party is headed, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and people like that.
2: Alex, to move on to something that is at least a little bit less depressing, to end the interview on that kind of note. I'm assuming we have some, at least some listeners who are of the uh, gaming rights contingent in America <laughs> society. And you wrote a- Gaming Americans, exactly, yes. Exactly. You wrote an <laughs> illuminating- He's for The New Republic recently headlined, Video games are a labor disaster tell our audience why and why this matters to them, even if they don't game.
0: Oh, yeah, sure. So the piece, and I want to make sure the, the piece is in part a discussion of my former Gawker Media colleague Jason Schreier's new book, Press Reset, which is a great, well-reported story of video game studio closures. And I found it very interesting read, and especially, I tried to make my piece accessible for people who are not gaming Americans, so I do hope that you, I do hope you read it. Video games are, are a really successful industry. They're, so much of the American economy is built on IP, and video games Are like a huge part of this IP based
2: entertainment industry. They make billions of dollars a year. It's also a great indicator of where the society and politics are headed. Gamergate, you could argue, forecasted basically everything that came after it.
0: Exactly, yeah. Gamergate was a sort of test run for a lot of other extremely online culture wars that that would come in the next few years. It's a rich topic, and I think one that is, if anything, sort of under-discussed in the the non-games media, right? (laughs) But I, I wanted to look at it from the sort of labor angle, because one of the interesting things about it, and I don't think people really know this, unless they follow the industry is that although it's a very successful industry and one in which most of the people working in it are fairly well paid, it's uh, still a labor disaster. And the reasons for that, there's a lot of them. And But it basically like People who develop games, who work on games, the people who do the actual work of creating the game are at the lowest rung of these entertainment conglomerate ladders and are treated as disposable, even though they're doing this highly technical work that, I mean, learn to code, that's sort of a buzzword and a joke for a reason. There's a lot of demand for that work, and it's often well compensated, but uh, it's an incredibly disruptive industry to be in. Oftentimes when when a large game studio ships a game, There are mass layoffs. Prior to shipping the game, there's a period of crunch where everyone is a sort of institutional tradition of incredible overwork. And when people lose jobs in the industry, they usually have to completely pack up their lives move across the country because there isn't a sort of games industry town it's spread not just nationally but internationally so in jason's book he'll write about someone who like in the course of their career in the games industry like moved from phoenix to boston to providence rhode island to australia to california like just to sort of keep in the same industry um and there's all these other things and my thesis of my piece was that, like, it doesn't have to be this way. And the reason it is this way is because it's a creative industry that is not unionized at all. Unlike, for example, the movie industry, which also creates these giant expensive entertainment projects, but which is one of the most densely unionized industries in American society left. And in movies, basically, what unionization did, in addition to providing protections for workers, it actually allowed them, it allowed a proto version of the gig economy to come into place That actually uh, made it work for the people who do the job in the sense that people who work in Hollywood, both the actors and writers, but also the people who operate the cameras and do makeup and and do costuming, they're independent contractors. Essentially, they go from project to project, but they get to keep their health benefits. They get to set the terms of their employment. They get to keep their
2: pensions with them because they're all union. All of them are union. Right. And that sort of like intense level of unionization is another reason why, bunch of seemingly out of work actors uh, can live off of their residuals like they won't necessarily go hungry even if they haven't been able to get work or find work for an extended period of time and you're saying there's nothing resembling anything like that in the gaming industry
0: no and there are there are efforts to organize it and there are some uh, including some of the entertainment unions have been working on the problem but no it's it's so far away from that system it couldn't be further away and for a long time there was a a sort of cultural resistance to the idea among games workers because of a sort of vestigial silicon valley maybe libertarianism but i actually think that's culturally changing and i think more and more people who actually work in the industry are fed up with the working conditions there and i do hope that begins to change soon
2: well not to be this reductive about it but alex are you yourself a gamer <laughs> I think a
0: hardcore gamer would consider me a filthy casual, but I am a gamer. Yes, I enjoy gaming.
2: I must confess, the only video game console, besides like a Game Boy or something like that, that I've ever owned, and I stopped after N64.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I took a break, as what happened for me is like, I took a sort of games are not for me break after like college years, and then Nintendo kind of sucked me back in. But now, now I'm like, I'm inching towards like...
2: I'm inching towards hardcore PC gaming, so there's probably no hope for me. (laughs) Is there anything that comes close to the artistic majesty of A Perfect Dark or A Golden Eye for N64?
0: (laughs) I think you should play, here's what I recommend for you, is Yakuza 0. I think you should give that one a shot. Oh, man.
2: Okay, okay. I I think I will. I have to look in (laughs) it. And on that note, Alex, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us on the program. You're welcome back anytime.
0: All right. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.
2: Will, are you ready for some fresh hell? Let's go into the deepest pit of the fresh hell this week,
1: folks. I got a bruiser for you.
2: So you've been reading a new batch of conservative children's books. How crumpy are these? How transphobic are these? How anti-CRT are
1: these? (laughs) The answer is very on all of them. And I should say I haven't been able to get my hands on copy yet, but but I've been studying the lore in the expanded universe. So, you know, people on the left, right, you have children's books like anti-racist baby, that kind of stuff. And now on the right, we're getting sort of a reaction to that in a new series of children's books that are meant to make sure you have an upright one America news watching child. So excellent. There's this new series of books, and they're called Brave Books. And what's fascinating to me about these children's books is they all star animals sort of anthropomorphized animals and each of the books teaches a lesson and each of the books has a sort of conservative like a c-tier conservative pundit attached to them but they all work into this larger universe called freedom island and so like you know there's i think they're kind of building up to an avengers kind of thing because there's like a but these islands are populated by animals that's right but they have like cities and stuff i mean like cute little Critters. Yeah, I mean, but, they're, but they have issues, right? I mean, like some of the animals are communists. Some of the animals are libertarian, I should say. And, and speaking of Freedom Fest, this is interesting to me. The moles, there's a whole taxonomy of the, the animals. Moles hate authority in every form of rules. They want to see the downfall of regulations and laws so that all animals can be truly free. But really, they just want to create chaos. So this, to me, is kind of an anti-libertarian book as well. But so here here's the setup. So the first book that's coming out, and I think it's interesting that this is the first one. It's called Something Like like Elephants Are Not Birds. And it's supposedly written by a lady named Ashley St. Clair, who is was a TPUSA sort of pundit figure until she was seen hanging out with white nationalist Nick Fuentes. She got the boot from that. And now she's writing this book. But the gist of Elephants Are Not Birds is that there's an elephant uh, who sings very well. And a vulture named Culture the Vulture convinces the elephant that he should be a bird but because he sings so well. But he does not have a very good time of it. And if you think that there are some sort of anti-trans insinuations here, that's no accident. Mm, tell us a little bit more about that. So that book's coming out. The New York Post had a, a very interesting article with the, the gentleman the who founded this. So upcoming books include The Island of Free Ice Cream from Frequent Pod mentioned guy. Uh, They're trying to get children
2: to hate free ice cream.
1: Well, here's the deal. They have a very industrious island until some some, I believe wolves arrive with free ice cream, aka communism, right? It's kind of a Cuba oh. kind of thing, maybe. And only this fox can save them. And this is curious to me. In the New York Post thing, they say the company is also courting Dan Crenshaw to write Fame, Blame, and the Raft
2: of Shame about cancel culture. So, this is an upcoming book on cancel culture. That's how you know you're an ultra successful publishing house when you have to get it written in the New York Post that, oh, we're quoting an author to do this thing?
1: Well, to be clear, yes. Number one, Dan Crenshaw's definitely not doing this. But number two, like, it's funny to say he's going to write it when the book has clearly already been written and titled. (laughs) Like, it's just like, I mean, basically, like we're getting him to endorse it. You know, there's so much going on with this series. I mean, so they have upcoming books on the right to bear arms, law and order, capitalism, critical race theory. And I think we we can play some audio from these guys. Are you
0: confident that your children's foundational values are grounded in truth? I'm not. I'm Trent Talbot, founder of Brave Books. When my daughter was born, I realized I couldn't rely on the culture around me to teach my children good values. These values they need to work hard, care for the weak, to appreciate the freedom we adore in America. That's why we at Brave Books have written stories with timeless virtues for the next generation. These stories take place in our Brave universe, where our heroes of Freedom Island are facing the
2: same villainous ideologies that our children face in our culture
1: today. But so Freedom Island comes with a map. And so you give this map to your kids, and as they read each one, they put their sticker on which part of Freedom Island they've discovered. But there's one part of Freedom Island in particular, I'm, and I should say, Freedom Island's more like an archipelago, because there's a lot of different islands around it. But there's one part in particular that I'm quite intrigued by. Mm-hmm. Which island is that? Well, I'm pretty sure they put Jeffrey Epstein's Little St. James in this book series, because tell me Mm. this is not about Epstein Island. Okay. It's called Cabal Island, right? And it has a temple on it, just like Jeffrey Epstein's Island. And here's the description of Cabal Island. Cabal Island may be the most mysterious of them all. Freedom Island's wealthiest animals vacation at the Temple of the Serpent, which makes
2: everyone quite curious, right? Am I wrong? That's about Little St. James, right? Yeah, and there's also a gigantic serpent encircling the temple with a a big old red apple in its mouth, just like guzzling the red apple. Okay, so this is clearly meant to be uh, it's a mark of sin and like the destruction of man, Adam and Eve stuff. So I guess like the cabal that is doing these horrible things to children. Okay. Yes. I I get that connection.
1: A nefarious vole named Ghislaine. I mean, it's not exactly like the most subtle stuff, but I would not put Jeffrey Epstein
2: references in a children's book. But then again, that's why I don't have an entire series. What a terrible thing to try to teach children. <laughs> I do not mean to say that's horrible to teach your children that satanic child murder cults are bad, that's not what I mean, but like to try to feed them anti-Epstein stuff at whatever age they're supposed to be when they consume this, like five years old, this is going to rot their brain. They're not going to know what's going on. <laughs> I love
1: everything else is like an allegory, right? Like everything else is, oh, okay, the ice cream is communism. How are we going to teach these to the kids? And then it's just like, there's a cabal and the rich <laughs> go
2: to this island. I mean, they just lose all the all the idea of like symbols and subtlety. I mean, it's all feels like a direct mirror image of what they accuse alleged CRT people of trying to do to young children. Like, this is the indoctrination that they keep whining about, but it's just coming from, like, a far-right perspective. That's it.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, you know, you're allowed to indoctrinate your own kids with a charming story about ice cream and,
2: and communism. This reminds me a lot of the conservative coloring books. You remember these? They were kind of a meme and kind of a thing during the Obama era. I didn't have the pleasure. They were promoted, I think, from time to time on Fox News. They were these adorable coloring books that would paint people like Trump or Ted Cruz as heroes. And obviously you could color all the different pages in yourself as much as you'd liked. I think they were branded as allegedly for all ages. But then they would have really graphic ones like anti-ISIS coloring books where members of ISIS would be seen in Iraq or Syria, crucifying people. (laughs) Color it in. This seems at least a little bit friendlier than those. I mean, you have little foxes who are representing like far right liberty. So I guess this is a step in the right direction for America's children.
1: I'm waiting for the book about the anarcho-capitalist moles. I'm not getting into (laughs) it till then.
2: On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll
1: subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian D'Amiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the
2: price tag. Say hello to Quince.